Haggai in chapter 1. Haggai in chapter 1, please. Let's just read the first chapter together. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, and to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and to Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified saith the Lord you looked for much and lo it came to little and when you brought it home I did blow upon it why saith the Lord of hosts because of mine house that is waste and ye run every man unto his own house therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew and the earth is stayed from her fruit and I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labour of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. We trust God will bless the reading and our consideration of this section. I think it's true to say that living wisely for God is... As we've seen earlier today, often the choice between not so much that which is bad and good, but between that which is good and that which is best. And when we come to Haggai chapter 1, it very much is the theme of this chapter. It's the theme of priority. The priorities of the Lord's people. 
in their everyday lives. Now remember that this, this book is really written to people and written about people who would say that they put God first in their lives. They wouldn't disagree with that statement. And would believe that up until this point in their lives that that's what they had been doing. But they had lost their way. This is not written to a people who had never experienced the blessing of God, nor had ever exercised faith in God. But rather, this is people who believed all of that, at least in their mind. They believed that the things of God were a priority. They believed that the house of God was a priority. They had, in their life, acted in faith and dependence upon God and they could tell the stories of it. But they had drifted. And they drifted into a way of life where their intellectual belief in the supremacy of God was not reflected in the reality of their day-to-day life. The two things did not match up. If you had asked these people, where should God be in your priorities? They would have said, number one. But when you looked at their life, you could see that God was not number one. So what they professed to believe and had believed was not actually at this point what they practiced. They were actually now at a position where they were giving lip service to the priority of God, but in fact God had been replaced by other priorities. God now sends a prophet, Haggai, and the purpose of his ministry is to challenge the Lord's people, to stimulate them, to get their priorities back to the way they once had been. Back to the way that they should be. Back to the way that they said they believed that they should be. This is pretty much a ministry for us today. In this room. I think maybe if we asked each other the same question, we would give the same answer. What place should God have in my life? I know the answer to that question. I'm sure you know the answer too. God should have first place. And perhaps, like me, you can look back to experience in your life where that was true. And where you made decisions and lived your life and God was in the first place. And they were big decisions that you made and steps that you took. But the truth of the matter is, that's not the way it is today. What's the historical setting here? Well, if you were to go back into the book of Ezra, you would find that this man Haggai is mentioned in chapter 5 and verse number 1. And he was sent by God along with Zechariah as prophets to his people. You remember that the nation of Israel had divided into two nations, Israel and Judah. Israel sometimes called Ephraim. And the ten tribes and the two tribes had separated and ultimately had been taken away, both of them, into captivity to the Assyrians and then to the Babylonians. 
the ten tribes that were taken because of their disobedience to God, taken out of the land into captivity, did not have a formal recovery or restoration, certainly not recorded in Scripture. They never came back. But when you think about the nation of Judah, and they were taken into captivity into Babylon then, there's more about them in the Old Testament for you read in the book of Ezekiel and you read in the book of Daniel and there you are reading about God's dealings with them in their captivity and then God's instruction to them to return from their captivity back into the land and that's exactly what happened but mind you only a remnant only a small proportion of those who went came back about 50,000 in total came back and they reckon in about 536 BC they returned. And they returned under the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. And they come back and they rebuild the altar when they arrive back. And they quickly again begin sacrific- the sacrificial system. Two years after they come back into the land. A land that had been desolate. They lay the foundations to rebuild the temple, the house of God. Where God's presence would be known and his worship would be received by him. It was a very special place for the nation of Israel and Judah. And so here were a people who were marked by faith. Here were a people who were marked by courage. Here were a people who stepped away from the the comfort of Babylon and, and went on a journey back. That's the sort of people we're talking about. Sadly, things began to go wrong because the Samaritan neighbours, they offered to join the work and, of course, there was a refusal. They weren't, uh, their offer wasn't accepted and they didn't accept the ungodly's help in the work of the Lord. So then they turned nasty and the people, the Samaritans really, they threatened the workers and they sent men to Persia to lobby against that remnant of Judah and to bring the work to a halt. And so there was a persecution and there was an opposition now from those who were in the land that they were returning to. Fourteen years passed. Fourteen years. What happened was just this, that the people gradually lost their passion they gradually drifted they lost their energy they lost their direction and they drifted and drifted and get caught up with the routine of life they farmed, they built their own houses they raised their own families and they got quite comfortable in not having a temple they just get quite comfortable even the leaders, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, they also get used to just things being as they were. And they settled for far less than God would have them receive and enjoy. It's into that scene that God sends Haggai. That's the context. People of faith, people of action, people of courage, people who've stepped out for God. Who received opposition and drifted in the things of God with the work not done. The service of the God come to a grinding halt. And now their priorities have changed. 
So the big thing for them now is family. The big thing for them now is their homes, physically their, their houses. The big thing for them is prosperity. The big thing for them is peace. You see, they say that God should be first, but now that's far from the truth. He's not first. Haggai comes, and mind you, there's a tremendous response when he does come. This is a people who are responsive to the word of God. Doesn't take much, actually. I'm going to be preaching four nights in Holborn. Actually, Haggai only preached four sermons as well. And I don't know if there'll be the same response to Haggai's ministry as there will be this week in Holborn. I've no idea. But there was only four messages. Classic little series of meetings. And there was an unbelievable response. Unbelievable. So here is the message that I want to bring to you. It's a challenge. Because really of the sort of people in the sort of situation um, that we have here. And as I'm speaking to a conference audience on a Saturday night, it's pretty much the same thing. Many of you have lived by faith for a long time in your life. Many of you are in assemblies and these assemblies came into being by people stepping out. People establishing, people serving God, people who were courageous. Maybe you were some of these people. And maybe some of you have lived like that for some time in your life. But the truth of the matter is, that's not the way it is now. And maybe you know it, maybe I know it. And we have different priorities now. Things have changed. We've settled for very, very little when God would have us with very, very much. Settled for little. Haggai is saying, give God the supreme place in their life. And they're saying, but we believe that God should have the supreme place in their life. Say, well, give God the supreme place in your life then. Get back to the way you were. As the Lord Jesus would say in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Priorities again. And all these things will be added unto you. All these things that are legitimate and important, and I'm not diminishing them in the slightest, but what I'm saying is this, there's something more important than all of that for us as the Lord's people. And it's the Lord himself. He's the most important. God himself, our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us not put our own prosperity, whatever that means to you, and whatever it means to me, and it will be different from you as it is to me, but whatever that is, whether it's just peace, whether it is just um, an easy life, whether it is just um, the kind of things that please you, and, and you settle into the whole thing, and you no longer take a risk. And you no longer step out in faith. And everything, everything is just care, careful. And everything is just, there's no faith at all. It's gone. Well, when we come to this, we are going to learn some, some really strong things here that Agia has to say. And they're very challenging. I trust that they'll be challenging to all of us this evening. You see, 
The truth of the matter is, if I say to you that true joy and happiness and blessedness is not found in possessions, nor accomplishments on earth, through whether it is through education, whether it's employment, whatever it is. True joy is not actually found in family. It's not actually. All of these things, as I say, all of these things have their place, all of these things have value and so forth, and they're important. But the supreme importance is in God himself. And if he does not have first place, then true blessedness will not be our portion. Let's just look at this and see what we can learn down through the chapter. I've mentioned that those who have been spoken to here, who often put their own prosperity above God's house, are often committed believers. We've seen that. Making the dangerous journey from Babylon back to the land. Most of them born and raised in Babylon, and yet they're leaving behind that which is familiar, that which is safe and secure, and they're stepping out for a new life. They're stepping out in faith. They're stepping out not knowing the guarantees of the future. It's not all guaranteed. It's not all certain. And now they are by faith responding to the call to return to the word of God. They've been convicted by God's word. And they step out in faith. Let us challenge our hearts. When was the last time we were convicted by the word of God and we did something by faith? We took God at his word and we stepped into it by faith. We're not speaking about financial things just at the moment. We're just speaking in general terms. And, and God speaks to you through his word. And, and you, you need to react. But to react is to take a risk. You cannot step in, out in faith without taking a risk. The two things go together. You trust God. You don't know the end from the beginning. But you take a step of faith. I want to notice four things here about those who put their own prosperity above the house of God. We've seen that mostly it is committed believers that this is being spoken to. We cannot exclude ourselves from this. These were committed people. Yet they drifted into this. But notice also, secondly, notice in verse number two, this is what they say. The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. They're not saying that the Lord's house shouldn't be built. They're not saying it's not a priority. They're just saying, not now. Now is not the time. Some other time. Maybe some other people. Yes, we should build this. Yes, it's a priority. But the truth of the matter is, it's not a priority for me. That is what lies behind this. There's always an excuse. There's always a reason for not doing this. I'm all for rebuilding the temple. It's a great cause. It's a really good thing to do. But I can give you ten reasons why we shouldn't do it. We're in an economic downturn. 
families in such and such a state of, of, of you know, the, the whole idea of family, whatever stage your family's at. And you say, listen, you know, we, we, can't, we can't take this step, we can't commit to that because of the, the stage we're at with the family, because of the stage we're at with work and our economic situation. We'll wait till times are better. We'll wait till circumstances are more suitable. Then we'll rebuild the temple. The sermon you can read by Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century that's entitled The Sin and Folly of Depending on Future Time. The Sin and Folly of Depending on Future Time. Prevarication. Putting it off. You don't need to sit in too many gospel meetings to hear the warning. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We preach at the gospel, and rightly so. The urgency of responding in faith to the word of God. That's no different in ministry. It's just no different. If God speaks, and if you're convicted about whatever, and I'm not going to be specific in this, because it's different for everyone in this audience. If God speaks to you, and you're convicted about something, something you need to do, something you need to stop, some relationship that needs resolved, some issue, some work environment problem or whatever, and you, you hear the voice of God, you understand that something has to happen, and you put it off. Remember this you may not get the opportunity to put it right. You may not. Prevarication. Notice as well in verse 5 and verse number 6 that when you come to verse 5 and verse number 6 the message was this, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then he describes what's been happening to them in their lives. This perplexing situation that nothing seems to be going right. And they can't understand it. It's really hard to explain naturally. And he says this in these verses. He says, you've sown much, but you actually bring in little. You eat, but you've never got enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe, but you're not warm. You earn wages, but you never seem to have any money. It's a strange thing. They're having these problems, sowing plenty of seed, but actually there's, there's not a great harvest. There's not a great outcome from it. Less seed to sow the following year. No matter how much they try, they don't seem to be making progress, and they're investing in the things of their harvest, and they're sowing, and they're investing in all these material things, but it just doesn't seem to be working. It's not going well. You say, well, surely, surely they can make it a matter of prayer and God would understand the circumstances. No, actually, what the prophet says is just this. God is the one who is causing things to not go well. What they don't see is that God's behind their circumstances. They hadn't stopped to consider that God's hand was upon them. God was intervening in their circumstances in discipline. Haggai comes along and he says, it's God who controls the rain. It's God who controls the harvest. He's withholding his blessing and he's withholding your prosperity. Because your priorities are all wrong. 
You know, sometimes when we look at our life and the challenges that we all face, and they all vary, the one thing that we don't ask and the one thing that we don't consider is what is God trying to say to me? We try and fix the circumstances, we try and do better and all this kind of stuff and we focus on that and we don't stop and say, hold on a minute here, is this the hand of God in my life? Am I under the discipline of God? Because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that you know, if we, if we go off his path and if we go away on the wrong path, that he will move in discipline and he will chasten us. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He doesn't just let us wander away without any intervention. And sometimes when life gets tough, we need to ask the question, what is God trying to say to us? Have I got it wrong? Are my priorities all wrong? Am I not pleasing the Lord? And then fourthly, notice this, that it says in verse number four, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lies waste? If you look at verse number 9 down to verse 11, You looked for much, and it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow in it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house there is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Vanity of vanity, Solomon says, all is vanity. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2. <laughs> You're putting your wages into a purse that's full of holes and you've got nothing at the end of the day. This is a real challenge, I think, to us in our day. In our materialistic society. In our western culture. I think we need to take a step back. And assess our priorities. We need to consider this. If I am investing my life. If I am investing my time. If my priorities are such that there are things more important to me than God and his service. And at the end of the day, that's the way I live. And then life comes to an end. And we're out into eternity. And we discover this, that we have been filling a purse. We've been filling a whole basket it's now empty. Nothing. What will it be to stand before that judgment seat of Christ and to stand and give an account of our priorities? It's a challenge. Well, if that is the case, and I don't think any of us in the room would say that we're, all, we're exempt from this. I can't. I wouldn't say that. It's a challenge to me. We constantly need to assess our priorities. Our unwillingness to act in faith. You know, we get to the stage that if we don't really have the whole thing worked out, even in a financial sense, that when we come to things that we're going to do as an assembly, that we get to the stage that if we don't have the whole thing sorted and worked out in advance, the whole thing, 
then were unwilling to step anywhere in faith. What has happened to us? Where is the courage to step out in faith for God? But what is the answer to that? Now he does speak here in this context about the temple, the house of God. And he's referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem. And that was the place where God would place his name, where God's presence would particularly be known and identified. And although God is omnipotent and omnipresent and everywhere at once, then he did say about that temple that that was the place on earth particularly where he would reveal himself and his glory would be known. That was the place where sacrifices were to be made and worship was to be offered. And it was lying in ruins. Now you come into the New Testament and there's not a direct equivalent of that in our New Testament context. In that there is no physical building that we need to build and then attend like the temple was for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a different context. But then you discover this, that in our day, in our generation, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are told that, no, you know, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in us, and we are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, our physical body is. So there's one aspect where we can see a comparison. And then also, do we not know that when we come together as a local church, as a local assembly as well, that not only physically in our bodies are we the temple, the dwelling place, but God presences himself in a very particular way when we gather together. And so that it's the house of God and it's the dwelling place of God in a very special way. And so we are being built as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is just this, both in terms of our physical body and also in terms of our local assembly and our gatherings together as a local assembly, there requires to be a priority placed for both of the dwelling place of God. What is our priority? Well, we see here in verse number 12 that there is a response from these people when they heard the word of God. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Critical. They obeyed the voice of God. Well, let's not be hard and harsh on these people. They were people of faith who as a result of opposition and difficulty had just drifted. But when God spoke to them and when they heard the word of God through his prophets, they obeyed. They obeyed. Oh, you don't often read that when you, when you read of the prophets prophesying in the Old Testament. Very often it was the opposite response. There was very often a rejection of the prophet and, and, a, and a hostility to the, the word of God, but not here. And here, they, they obey the word of God, and here is the key to reassessing. Here is the key to having our priorities correct. It is an obedience to the word of God. There's no shortcut to this. 
We've got to take God's word and instead of just agreeing with it, we need to actually put it into practice in our lives. And that will be true for us individually as our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are things we'll need to obey physically. There are things we will need to obey individually. There's priorities that we'll need to put in the right place. Decisions we'll need to make personally. And also when we come together as a local assembly, a local church, decisions we need to make. Priorities that need to be reassessed. You don't often hear of assemblies coming together to repent of their sin. You don't often hear of assemblies coming together and confessing before God that they have not had their priorities right. This is what's required. Obedience. To the word of God? Are we too proud? Do we think that we have reached a stage where that doesn't apply to us? Have we, have we, do we think that that is some, in some way inappropriate or humiliating? Or, or, or where are we with that? Would that ever cross our minds? Would we ever feel the desire for that? Would we ever feel compelled to do that? To just humbly come together and confess before the Lord? The priorities have been wrong. We've been putting other things before God's glory and before the the, the spread of his word and being obedient to his word. And pride has played, played a part and all sorts of other nonsense. And so there is an obedience here. Haggai preached and the people obeyed. And notice this, it began with the leadership. This was not, if you like, from the kind of... Um, the, the people who, who were just the ordinary people um, of, the, of the, the nation there uh, and it was applying to them and then the leaders were kind of preaching down at them and telling them the leaders were the first named as responding to the word of God in obedience because that's what leaders do they lead and so here he says that it was Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jozadak the high priest. Then it says with all the remnant of the people. True leadership taking the people into the sphere of obedience. The reality of, of getting to grips with God and sorting out the fact that they were all way down the wrong path. And here, when Haggai preaches, or the message he preached was so appropriate, he actually claims to speak for God more than any other prophet in Scripture. 25 times out of 38 verses, he says that he's speaking, and it's the word of the Lord. It was clear what he was doing. And God was speaking, and the people were responding, and it wasn't a one-time obedience either. It was a pattern of obedience. It was a pathway of obedience. It was a different direction. We've been hearing about revival, we've been hearing about the gospel, but we've also surely been hearing about the people of God who are serious about the work of God, serious about the revival, serious about the need to get before God and engage with God as his people. That's really what we've been hearing. And yet the truth of the matter is, and you know, I'm no different from you and Where I come from is likely no different from where you come from. This is not a criticism of anyone. 
It's just an observation of where we are today in our country. In so many places, we're far from this. We're far from this. It's just not true. Settled into a routine. Settled into a way. We've settled into a kind of rut almost. And there's, there's no spontaneity. There's no engagement with God. Same old. Same old. Same old. Without the reality that's described here. Obedience to the word of God. But then notice as well that to put God's house first, to put God first, requires constant self-evaluation and the fear of God. Notice what it says in verse 5 and verse 7. Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. You know, this is not a, a message for radical transformation of what is done in assembly testimony. Far from it. Far from it. It's got very little to do with that at all. This is an appeal for a radical transformation in our relationship with the Lord as individuals and as assemblies of his people. And to just say that maybe God is saying to us as individuals and corporately consider your ways. Consider your ways. Stop and think. How do you do that? In the midst of a busy schedule, and life is busy, isn't it? Assembly testimony is busy for those who are active. And usually that's a core of the assembly, probably. That's the people who come to conferences on a Saturday afternoon as well. And life is busy. Lots of activity, lots of responsibility. We need to consider our ways. I wondered, I put some questions down here in my notes. This is how I would consider this question how am I spending my time you know these people have plenty of time for themselves but didn't seem to have the same time for God it's a question what about my time secondly what about my money my money what about my money these people claimed that they had other calls upon their finance which was their own homes and as a consequence the finance was not being directed where it was required in the temple perhaps we also need to ask the question about our finances and the decisions we make about that it's a very personal thing what about our goals in life what are we aiming for what is a good day what's a good week what is a good week ask the question what do you think about most what secretly occupies your thoughts? Do you dream about getting rich? Do you think about achieving fame or some sort of accomplishment at work? Is it some leisure pursuit that obsesses you? Do you think about the Lord Jesus ever? Ever? Who do you aspire to be like? Who do you aspire to be like? Who do you admire? Who are your friends? 
Who do you like spending time with? How do you spend your leisure time? There's all these sorts of questions. Consider your ways. And all undergirding all of these questions should be as it is in verse 12. And the people did fear before the Lord. They feared the Lord. Well, what is the outcome of priorities being in the right place? And I'm nearly finished. Well, look at verse number 8. I know I've jumped about this chapter a bit, but just look at verse number 8. And he says, Consider your ways, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. There's two things here. God says, do you know, if you you put your priorities as they should be, make the adjustments. He says, I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, imagine the Lord is looking upon your local assembly. What better thing could be said but the assembly that I come from in Bridge of Weir? What higher accolade could you accomplish than this? Is this not as good as it gets? I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified. Oh, that the Lord would be pleased. And oh, that the Lord would be glorified. Made much of and declared. But actually himself, when we come together and when we worship and preach and a fellowship and when we pray, that the Lord is pleased and the Lord is glorified. But also, look at verse 14, because it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And that is my desire with bringing you this message today. We have heard about times when this happened. This is what happened. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Oh, that God would stir our spirits. That God would actually come in amongst us and uh, and stir us up that we would not be passive that we would not just be satisfied people, middle aged people we were older, middle aged people like us on the platform that we that we would not be satisfied that we would not lose our enthusiasm and our passion and our zeal for the Lord and settle into the comfort of familiar and of certain circumstances and just tread water just tread water no rather in verse number 14 you find this that when the Lord stirs and notice he stirred the spirit of who? Zerubbabel the son of Shealti, or governor of Judea, and Joshua the son of George, like the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. You see the pattern. They were obedient to the word of God, and the Lord stirred their spirit. Every one of them. And then it says this, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They got back at it. Serving God with God is number one. What a wonderful testimony to these people of God who heard the voice of God to them. Must have been tough to hear it. Obeyed what they heard 
And the Lord stirred them. And then they just got stuck in. They just got on with it. I said when I was here at the New Year that I was brought up with a kind of ethos in life. It wasn't a very kind of politically correct ethos, but the ethos was simply this, just get on with it. You know, I would say things to my dad, and his response would just be, just get on with it. There's a lot to be said for it. Just get back on with it. So much to be done for the Lord, with him as number one. Not done grudgingly, not done forcibly, but done because the Lord has stirred our hearts. And again, we have this passion and desire that he might be pleased with us and that we might glorify him and that our assemblies might know the evidence of this. No longer drifting. No longer just killing time and just the status quo, but rather seeking God and seeking his blessing amongst us. And so we've heard of two great stories of revival. Perhaps the question is, do we really believe that God is still able to work? In that way or in any way? In any way amongst us? He doesn't change. The question is, are we willing to change? Are we willing to change? Trust that God would take this challenge and bless us. Thank you.